Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from the Pacific Inland Northwest. This is Authentic Biochemistry. Today I'm going to do part three, where in our discussion on Alzheimer's disease. Specifically, we're going to talk about the pathobiochemistry of this disease, related, of course, to the bioenergetics that I've introduced in parts one and two as we kicked off this entire new podcast. Last podcast, we introduced a new paradigm I've developed for scientific inquiry called dia event ontology. I'm going to recap a little bit about what I meant by that, and then we're going to delve into um, fusing together the elements of multiple published papers describing how a pathology in biochemistry related to fuel utilization and pro-inflammatory responses may be the prodromal phase to late-onset Alzheimer's disease in humans. Now, what I want you to remember is that what I, what I want to do when I look at scientific literature is not only do I want to understand it, um, what the purpose is, but I want to look at the evidence with a great deal of clarity. And I want to verify that evidence against the backdrop of all the other information that's out there in a given field. So I don't just read the paper and say, oh, okay, so they did these experiments. Here are the results. And the results, according to their discussion, says this. Now, that's just not the way that I do things. Um, I try to read the papers with a great deal of, I wouldn't say skepticism, but with a very careful attention to detail, how the experiments were done, and even more importantly than that, what was behind the conception of the experiments, because I think that plays a major role in how things are done. And as it turns out, that's only really a very small understanding of what I mean by dia-event ontology. What I really am getting at here is that when you read papers in scientific journals, you can't just take that paper and accept that that is saying something full stop about a given disease, for example, Alzheimer's disease in this case. You have to look at it in terms of what tissue are they talking about, what stage of the disease it is, and how many windows of understanding have they opened up relative to competing pathways, competing signal transduction systems, and a possible immunological um, valence, and any number of other physiological, biophysical, and indeed, frank, biochemical um, nuances that need to be entreated and understood in order for us to understand and appreciate whether or not the evidence is being presented in a given paper. Um, helps us understand at a better level, at a deeper, more meaningful level, what's going on in that particular disease paradigm. Or if it's a healthy system, same thing, of course. So what I want to say is that in this case, we looked a lot at bioenergetics last time. And I told you that that was one of the components of the three-part elemental framework I call the dia event ontological record of a system. Okay, so in this particular case, there are genetic components. The genetics has to do with all the genes that get expressed first through RNA and then finally to protein, and then all the enzymes and the potential uh, cofactor proteins that are related to 
the pathways we talked about, like our transport chain, oxidative phosphorylation, fatty acid oxidation, fatty acid utilization, fatty acid uptake, uh, ketogenesis, glycolysis, glucose uptake, those kinds of things that we talked about last time. Basically, just the very elements of bioenergetics. So that was one element. Now, we're going to take a look at another, and that, of course, it requires us to remember that there's a framework that ultimately includes a network and layers of immuno and tissue-specific cellular interactions that drive to either proximal, determined, or pseudo-determined, and sometimes even final, what I call teleological conclusions. The third element, because that's the second element, okay, thinking about having an immunological perspective and understanding that the immune system is not a defense system. It is actually a biochemical tailoring system that interacts in every single biochemical event in the cell, especially when we're talking about those systems that are governed by the complex uh, acquired and residual immune systems that we get in mammalian um, biochemistry. So that's part two. So there's one more. The third movement of this, what I call the trigonal planar interaction, involves a dynamic macro and micro environmental modification of gene expression, but also lipid and protein synthesis, which has to do with other kinds of biochemical phenomenon and transcription. We also have to talk about molecular movement, modification of that system, and assembly both intra, inter, and even non-membranously coupled to dedicated electrochemical circuits and gradients that drive action potentials, in this case in healthy central nervous system, and a corruption of that processive event, it's a processive event, in the pathophysiology of uh, Alzheimer's disease, AD. So I want you to understand that the way that we can look at this as a means to interpret it at a more holistic level is that we're looking at an adaptive plastic and elastic mechanism. Now by plastic, I mean that once a specific pathway or a specific sequence of events has been laid down in the process leading to Alzheimer's disease, all those processes leave an indelible mark so they are plastically altered, which means they don't go back to the previous or original form of whatever that teleological consequence of biochemical pathway and epitome of that interaction might be. So it's a plastic event. The next is an elastic mechanism, and that has to do with things like phosphorylation, dephosphorylation, acetylation, deacetylation. And also, of course, all of the epigenomic events, such as acetylation and methylation of nucleic acids, acetylation, methylation of histones cohering to regions of DNA that are going to be altered in expression. And of course, enzymes like sirtuins, which are deacetylases, histone deacetylases, and, and frankly, just generally protein deacetylases, and also the demethylases, and then whatever governs those systems. So that's what I'm talking about. Uh, there in terms of an elastic mechanism. You can change it, and then it goes back to what it was in the original form, although it's set in motion, a cascade of events, which are no longer leading down the same pathway. It's been altered, and sometimes inalterably altered, um, uh, such that you're, you're developing a full-blown disease. All right.
when I say when I say that, I mean that once you've given down that pathway, you've checked so many um, checkpoints along the way that you can't get back to where you started, even though it's an elastic phenomenon in terms of real-time um, phosphorylation, dephosphorylation, et cetera, all those types of covalent modifications, or even, in fact, hydrophobic interactions. So we have an adaptive plastic and elastic mechanism for real-time modification of genetic sequences via things like mutation, recombination, and repair of DNA, coupled with the triplet codon bias, which is unique, and a segregation of structural and functional domains that provide both a dynamic template for assembly and rearrangement of genetic loci, which then allows for the amplification and then the possibility for biochemical reactivity, biophysical motion, and the opportunity for metabolic zonation as tissue specificity, organelle sequestration, and even topodynamic membrane association and or secretion mechanisms with a complete repertoire of recognition mediating and concentration quantifying receptor-mediated boundary events and a score of unique and control-nuanced signal transduction cascades. All of this contributes to a genetic component of the diaventological paradigm of living systems, and that understands and indeed embraces a time signature throughout the process of these real-time events. Not substance ontology, event ontology. Okay. So what we're talking about here is the cellular interactions and immune epigenetic modifications that tailor these events and they're under a genetic law-giving architectonic, but further include the transcendentally superseding of these structural dynamics via an immediate and or mediated reading, writing, and erasure of all the molecular agency according to the potentiation of randomness and stochastic uncertainties indicative of biological systems in the world through time. So that's my diaventological prolegomena. Now, the bioenergetics in more detail. We can talk about external nutrition providing catabolite resources necessary to produce energy currency of the cell. And what is the energy currency of the cell? Ribonucleotide known as ATP, adenosine triphosphate, of course. So you get a consumption of carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids. They're digested via associated activities of that process. Finally, those nutrients are catabolized down to monomeric units. They are reassimilated. Ultimately, this can occur, much of this occurs in the small intestine because of proteases and glycosidases and lipases. And then ultimately, it's all transported to the liver for processing and storage with ultimate synthesis in the liver and also even starting at the small intestine at the level of chylomicrons but most significant in the liver, a synthesis of nascent lipoproteins uh, that deliver glycerol, prenal, and sphingolipids to the periphery. That's all really important because those lipids, as it turns out, mediate the entire process of normal physiology, normal biochemical systems, as well as when there are pathological states to consider. This is in conjunction then with the digestion of complex macromolecules and of course, you have a contributing multi-organ network 
such as the pancreas, um, and, and also the adipokines that are generated from the adipose tissue, and signaling proteins that are made in the gut itself, or even from the stomach, right? Such as ghrelin, acylghrelin. So you have that, plus you have a neuroendocrine, and as I just mentioned, exocrine enzymes, from like the pancreas, plus an immune response, um, which coordinates the assimilation process while keeping, in this instance of this discussion, the central nervous system supply with glucose and ketone bodies for ATP synthesis. So underlying all that physiology, which is basically what that is, is biochem, biochemistry. So you have carbohydrate, fatty acid, to a lesser extent, the amino acid carbon skeleton after transamination or deamination pathways. All of that carbon gets oxidized, ultimately, to carbon dioxide via the decarboxylating dehydrogenases that support and contribute to the Krebs cycle, along with all of the remaining dehydrogenases peripheral to it, which are responsible for, ultimately, NADH biosynthesis which is ultimately reoxidized via the electron transport chain while passing electrons along a redox couple, reducing molecular oxygen all the way to water. And along the way, with one electron reduction, you get partially reduced forms of oxygen we call ROS, or reactive oxygen species. At the same time, you're translocating protons via the proton motive force, chemiosmosis, to the inner mitochondrial membrane space, only to be driven back through a proton motive force through the proton pumping ATPase, producing ATP in the process where the ATP is synthesized in the matrix of the mitochondrion. That's a greatly condensed summary of bioenergetics, and I'm offering it basically just to increase your awareness of its role in Alzheimer's disease. Recall that Alzheimer's disease, again, is a neurodegenerative disease in which ATP sequestration in the mitochondria of glial cells, in this case astrocytes mostly, can limit energy to proximal neurons, thus inducing a change in carbon utilization throughout the CNS region known to present with necrotic tissue pathology. There was a recent paper or review paper in Neuromolecular Medicine, published in 2018, volume 20, page 174 starting, where it was reported that certain canonical transcription factor pathway, the Went beta catenin pathway, WNT beta catenin pathway. That whole system was modified in AD, Alzheimer's disease. Remember the A beta protein that, for, that can polymerize into plaques actually stimula, stimulates an enzyme called DKK1, which is a kinase. And that's actually an inhibitor of the wind signaling. You also there, of course, inhibit associated phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase AKT pathway. And with all that being blocked, then the result is that A beta, that peptide, induces central nervous system neurotoxicity caused by reactive oxygen species mediated damage and mitochondrial dysfunction. The elevated ROS tanks ATP synthesis and ultimately results in apoptosis due to a significant loss of neuronal synaptic bioenergetics. And there's associated program cell death leads directly to the AD phenotype, which results in increased dementia. Okay. Now, at that biochemical level, the downregulation of the went beta catenin pathway results in a decrease in an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, PDK. The loss of PDK prevents 
phosphorylation-dependent inhibition of the glycolytic enzyme known as pyruvate to dehydrogenase. So that more acetyl-CoA actually enters because of this inhibition of WENT, which therefore inhibited, um, uh, which, which prevented the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase from being active, resulted in superactive PDH, which means there's more acetyl-CoA made. Linking that to with uh, lactate dehydrogenase inhibition, particularly LDH isoform A inhibition, both of those tend to increase the level of pyruvate, thus enhancing the flow of carbon to both acetyl-CoA via the dehydrogenase and to oxaloacetic acid via pyruvate carboxylase. Okay? That increases, therefore, because of the condensation of OAA and acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria, the flux through the citric acid cycle. Finally, then, the A-beta protein-mediated drop in the WENT signaling decreases the monocarboxylic acid transporter, the MCT expression, so that further doesn't allow carbon to leave the mitochondria and hence get involved in, say, gluconeogenesis. That leads to an excessive buildup of NADH, stalling the electron transport chain, building up reactive oxygen, decreasing net ATP synthesis, and ultimately generating and causing neuronal programmed cell death, emblematic of Alzheimer's disease. Since the glucose transporter glute expression is also went beta catenin um, mediated, it's no longer expressed when you've caused an inhibition of the went beta catenin pathway because of the turning on the DKK, that kinase. So that means that the A, B, the A beta protein mediates a drop in went signaling and also decreases glucose uptake and therefore glycolysis. This is something called glucose hypometabolism. That's not a good thing in a central nervous system. And it would enhance the switch to fatty acid oxidation and ultimately the acetyl-CoA to ketogenesis because of the high NADH levels. And then therefore ketone body, like acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate utilization in the Alzheimer's diseased neurons in the brain. Okay, there's a paper in Neuromolecular Medicine published in 2018, volume 20, uh, starting page 174, and you can take a look at where I'm getting this information from. There's also a concomitant dysregulation of circadian rhythms because of the corruption in the WEN signaling I just mentioned, and the accompanying sleep disorder, which dissociation, which is also associated with some of the physiological issues in Alzheimer's disease. That leads to a further neurodegeneration and phenotypic progressive neurodegenerative dementia. Similar results actually have been seen in Parkinson's disease through some of these canonical pathways. One key player I also have to introduce here that's kind of left over and very important is the pro-inflammatory sphingolipid ceramide. We'll return to the basic biogenetics in a moment, but let me get involved with ceramide here real quickly. Prodromal Alzheimer's disease biochemistry includes the synthesis of ceramide in the astrocytes and an increase in ketogenesis. Ketones translocated from the astrocytes leads to an inhibition of glucose uptake. The hypothalamic astrocyte insulin receptor-mediated glucose uptake actually regulates central nervous system glucose utilization, ultimately via control over the blood-brain barrier transport system. You can find information on that in a paper published in Cell 2016, August 11th, 
That is issue 166 and the pages relevant there, 867 to 880. Now, that's the third paper I've talked about so far. Since AD is the most common age-related neurodegenerative disease with associated incremental dementia, it, of course, has received a tremendous input and interest by the research community, both in clinical and in subclinical studies. So we talk about doing animal model research, and, of course, we have a lot of um, pharmace- pharmaceutical drugs that are being tested in Alzheimer's disease. So we have a lot of human cohort studies, and we also have a lot of postmortem autopsies. At the protein level, I think many of you might know this, Alzheimer's disease is linked to both neurofibrillary tangles, think tau protein, and of course the beta amyloid deposits, the plaque, although actually if you really study the manuscripts and study the overall um, evidence in the papers, a direct causal mechanistic link to those proteinopathies, the tau and the beta amyloid, is not universal, nor is it sufficient to produce Alzheimer's disease presentation or the endophenotypic neuropathology. So I want you to understand that what we normally think about, the neurofibrillary tangles, beta amyloid plaques, all of that, that's called, they're called proteinopathies, those are not universal, nor are they sufficient to produce or reproduce AD presentation. Uh, you can uh, follow uh, the research is published in Pharmaceutical Research, that journal. That came out also in March of 2018. It's volume 35, page 49 and ongoing. Now, the majority of Alzheimer's disease, 90 to 95%, I would say, is truly idiopathic. We don't know what causes it. It's random, with a major contributory factor being simply age over 65. So idiopathic means we don't know what causes it. But randomness just has to do with we don't even know why it happens in some people and not others. Okay, so that's two total two things you can segregate out of the evidence in the um, research populations. So age over 65 seems to play a major role. So that could mean that as you age, something in the overall systems of something as similar, uh, something as generic and similar across a lot of different distributions of people such as bioenergetics, could actually be a good focus point. Indeed, that's what we're saying here. So, But even with like familial Alzheimer's disease or FAD, which does have presumed genetic loci, even that form, which is very rare, lacks full penetrance and genetic contributory severity of presentation. So since all AD is characterized with age-related progression of protein aggregate accumulation, Of course, it does have family recognition with other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Huntington's chorea. So we do know that, and that's why it's another reason why people make those extrapolations. But anyways, all those proteinopathies can occur because of corrupted protein turnover, as with the ubiquitin proteasome system, so some kind of inhibition there, excessive protein synthesis, for example, in the mTORC superactivity modes that we've found, or with basically just an incompetent autophagy, mitophagy, or pexophagy, uh, so that you don't have a turnover of macromolecules. <clears throat> so anyways, a new understanding of Alzheimer's disease that I'm trying to tell you about this afternoon is that neurons degrade because astrocytes start producing ketone bodies as a response to insulin resistance in those 
cells. And what cells we're talking about are the astrocytes, not the neurons. This is not the same as ketogenesis in the liver during fasting. So it is a CNS specific and thus not a dietary connection in as much as ketogenesis is usually favored as a common co-adaptation to fat uh, utilization, depot fat utilization in a healthy body. Hence, the astrocytes are thus the key to understanding the etiology and seeming idiopathic onset of AD in an otherwise normal, healthy human population, yet demonstrating a still uncovered precise genetic predisposition. Astrocytes are the most abundant family of glial cells in the CNS, and they do associate with myelinated axons and are thus basically wrapped with another glial cell called the lipodendrocyte, of course. A note on myelin, it is, of course, composed of sphingomyelin, that lipid, which is basically ceramide uh, with a phosphonylcholine head group. So that phosphonylcholine itself is a trimethylated ethanolamine phosphate anhydride, which it shares with phosphatidylcholine, a glycerol lipid. In terms of its solution, chemistry, hydrophobicity, and basic molecular structure, it is similar to PC, that is, sphingomyelin. Thus, the A-beta-induced sphingomyelinase is turned on by the A-beta. Is thus an early prodromal characteristic of AD. Catabolism of myelin and subsequent production of ceramide, then, deals a two-punch mechanism in prodromal AD. It leads to the production of fatty acid used for ketogenesis after beta-oxidation down acetyl-CoA, thus corrupting glucose utilization and leading to reactive oxygen species overload due to the dependency on functionally known and now caused mitophagic astrocytes. So the mitochondria is starting to break down via mitophagy and eventually neurons while generating ceramide, thus inducing radially expanding and distance mitigating because of pro-inflammatory cytokines also being generated, which we'll talk about next time, tissue death in a paradigmatic pathway. This is a dia event ontological sequence involving unique cell-specific and time-sequenced breakdown of biofuel preferences in the CNS. It's therefore not simply a triggered phenomena, but rather a complex three-way interaction that develops stemming from sphingomyelinase activation, excessive ROS, that's reactive oxygen species production, ATP starvation, with the synthesis of pro-inflammatory cytokines, all of which marshal in the Alzheimer's disease pathobiochemical state. Eventually, epigenetic phenomena are triggered, thus dysregulating gene expression via such phenomena as sirtuin-mediated deacetylation patterns in the nucleus and the synthesis of interfering microRNAs. The end result is massive neurodegeneration, loss of cognitive faculties and memory reorganization. This is how we do recall and ultimately death. So that's where we are right now in our biochemical discussion of Alzheimer's disease. We're going to, in our next episode, we're going to further synthesize this information, bring on a few more papers key to understanding this relevant paradigm shift in Alzheimer's disease etiology. So for right now, this is me, Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on this beautiful Saturday afternoon, the 9th of March, 2019 in the Intermountain northwest of the United States. And all I have to say now is my signing off, which I do on my Vera Med Studio as well. And that is bye for now.